So my name's Heather Griffin, and it's my privilege this afternoon as Secretary of the Interfaith Relationships Committee to chair this session in which we ask the question, how do we build a strong, resilient civil society in Queensland? When it came to, this, to considering what topics to focus on for the 33rd Synod, the committee again thought of the challenges Muslim Australians face, and we thought of the strong call of Jesus in the Beatitudes to be peacemakers. As I said, we're in for a real treat. So to bring us our thoughts on this topic, let me introduce our esteemed panel members, um, two of whom you should know, and two of whom will probably be new to you, but uh, I highly recommend them, they're great people. Uh, first of all, we have Associate Professor Halim Rain, and then we have his, his wife, Dr Nora Amath, and then we have Heather Allison and Brian Hool, both Reds. I've got to give them their titles. <laughs> I'm going to uh, give you a little information about each one of them, and then I'm going to hand it over to them to speak. We're going to ask each person to speak for seven minutes, um, and we're going to be fairly strict on that so that we can have time to ask questions, because that, I think, is often as important as anything else. Right, Halim Rain, PhD, is an Associate Professor of Islam-West Relations at Griffith University. In 2015, he received the prestigious Prime Minister's Award of Australian University Teacher of the Year. Associate Rain, Professor Rain's research focuses on Islam in the West, particularly Muslim communities in Australia. He is the author of numerous articles and books on Islamic and Muslim issues, including Media Framing of the Muslim World, Conflicts, Crises and Concepts, Making Australian Foreign Policy on Israel-Palestine, media, media Coverage, Public Opinion and Interest Groups, Islam and Contemporary Civilization, Evolving Ideas, Transforming Relations and Reconstructing Jihad and Competing International Norms. His forthcoming book is entitled Islam and Muslim Communities in the West. Dr. Nora Amath works as the statewide coordinator and managing supervisor with the Islamic Women's Association of Australia she is also an adjunct research fellow at Griffith University. Nora has strong connections to the community across a number of areas, including youth, women and multi-faith groups, and is a member of the Minister's Queensland Multicultural Advisory Council. She is the founder and or chair of a number of different organisations, focused on supporting people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, including founding a domestic violence shelter. Currently, Nora is the chairperson of AMARA, which stands for Australian Muslim Association for the Rights of All Humanity. Have I got it? <laughs> um, and board secretary of Islamic Relief Australia. Nora has received many awards for her efforts 
In 2006, she received the prestigious award of Australian Muslim Woman of the Year. In 2007, and again in 2012, she received Australia Day Community Awards. In 2017, she was a finalist at the Australian of the Year Awards. Nora is a mother of three teenagers and has a PhD in Sociology of Religion and Community Development. Pretty impressive, eh? <laughs> Told you we were privileged today. Now, Reverend Heather Ellison. It's interesting when you get to, um, to actually read these through because you get to know all sorts of things about people that you thought you knew. Heather's um, a Uniting Church minister and works as a hospital chaplain at the Wesley Hospital. She previously worked as an occupational therapist and as an OT educator at the University of Queensland. Heather brings to her chaplaincy a deep understanding of how people can develop resilience in the face of illness, disability, and at the end of their life. Heather has an interest in multi-faith spirituality and how spirituality supports people at significant times of their lives. She worked with a team at the Wesley to welcome and support Muslim patients giving birth at the hospital. Heather is interested in community development and the power of grassroots movements. And finally, Reverend Brian Hull. Brian is a Uniting Church minister with over 20 years experience with ministry in Tasmania, Victoria, Queensland, and uh, for a time with Uniting World in Vanuatu, and is currently the Presbytery Minister for Bremer Brisbane Presbytery, and works as a volunteer police chaplain. Brian grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne with strong ethnic diversity of predominantly Southern European. His five years ministry in Melbourne was in the city of Moreland, which boasts over 30% of residents born overseas and 50%, 56% of residents that had both parents born overseas. Islam makes up nearly 10% of the city's population. Brian is passionate about community engagement and building a strong civil society. He built a strong community presence in Harvey Bay in 11 years of ministry there and is one of the Uniting Church leaders in the Queensland Community Alliance that seeks to build a better civil society, working in partnership with unions, other churches, and faiths and community organisations. So, without any further ado, I'd like to invite our first speaker, Associate Professor Halim Rain, to share his thoughts with us. I think it's good. Yeah. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Heather, for the invitation. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I'd, I'd probably like to focus on the, the, the bigger picture issue, um, and then uh, Nora will, will uh, take over and look at some more specific uh, issues concerning uh, communities and, and their, their relationship with one another. Uh, in my field, uh, the field of Islamic studies, some incredibly important research has been taking place over the last few years, uh, particularly concerning the early history of Islam. It seems to me that a lot of the challenges that, uh, that we face in the interfaith space has to, has to do with trust on the one hand, but a lot of that has to do with 
our history, the history of Muslim and non-Muslim interactions, particularly Muslim interactions with Christians. And I think much of the understanding of history, both on the part of Muslims and non-Muslims, has been one where we have, we have seen and we have assumed that Muslims have historically uh, maintained this position of dominance over non-Muslim uh, communities in the past, and this has been somehow um, related to negative impacts that have um, been experienced by non-Muslim communities, particularly Christian communities of the past. And we can see this when we look at the way certain Muslim texts are interpreted. It seems as though there is um, uh, a level of, of respect and, um, and, and a recognition of rights of Christians that we find wanting, particularly in the 20th and the 21st century. Now, what I find fascinating is that uh, a lot of this has been challenged um, just in the last few years with some very important research that's been done in the field of Islamic studies, particularly by historians and philologists that have looked in detail uh, at certain documents that have recently come to light. And I'd like to share some of the findings of that research with you today. Um, these documents relate specifically to covenants that were uh, agreed to or um, prepared by the Prophet Muhammad, uh, who is the, the founder of Islam, who was born around the year 570 and is said to have established Islam between the years of 610 and, and until his death in the year 632. Now, it's historically believed that when Muhammad came onto the scene and after his death, uh, the Muslim empires expanded out into the Near East, across North Africa, into Spain and, and over into Mesopotamia and into Persia, and they dominated over the uh, existing uh, Christian and other re religious minorities uh, in the area, both in Arabia and, and further afield at the time. Now, these documents, the covenants of the prophet, challenge our understanding of the fundamental relationship between the prophet and uh, the Christian, and particularly Christian and Jewish communities of his time. Now, this work is very recent, and I'm referring today to an article that came out that was published in the Oxford Journal of Islamic Studies just last year. And what this document has done is essentially authenticated about 10 documents that um, represent the perspective of the Prophet Muhammad and his relationship with Christian and Jewish tribes and communities of his time. Uh, this includes the Christians of Najran, which were based in the south of Arabia, the, the monks of Mount Sinai, Armenian Christians, uh, the Christians of the world. There's another document that encompasses uh, Muhammad's relationship with the Christians of the world. The Jews of uh, a, a place called Kabar, which is uh, also in the Arabian Peninsula. Then there were also covenants signed between the companions of the Prophet Muhammad who succeeded him in leadership uh, with the Christian and Jewish communities of their time. So there's the covenant, covenants of Umar with the um, Christians of Jerusalem, another one with the Christians of Mesopotamia, and there's a, a final one, the 10th document, which is an agreement between Ali, the fourth caliph of Islam, with the Armenian Christians. Now, what do these documents say? To sum them up, if we look in detail at the, the documents signed between the Prophet Muhammad and the Christians of Najran, we find that um, he said that the Muslims would protect the churches and monasteries of the Christians, that they would not permit the demolishing of any churches or any church property, either to build mosques or to build houses for Muslims. That all ecclesiastical property of the Christians would be exempt from every tax. That no ecclesiastical authority would ever be forced by Muslims to abandon his post. 
that no Christian would ever be forced by the Muslims to become a convert, and that if a Christian woman married a Muslim, she would have full freedom to follow her own religion. The author of this uh, particular article, his name is Ahmed Al-Wakil, and he's based uh, in Qatar. Um, He adds to this by saying that the language and tone of the covenants are undoubtedly more tolerant and diplomatic than that of the compacts. Now, the compacts are another document that um, we refer to when we look at the history of Muslim and Christian relations. These were documents that... um, that emerged uh, around the period of about 200 years after the time of the Prophet Muhammad, um, during the time of an empire called the Abbasid Empire. It's actually during this period that all of the, you could say, the doctrines and the theology and uh, the the interpretations of the Quran and and the schools of religious thought of Islam, including the sectarian divisions between Sunnis and Shias, developed. So it's a very important era in the development of what Muslims now refer to as Islam. And I think what this new research is telling us is that there is something different between that era and the foundational eras at the time of the Prophet. So what Wakil is saying is these documents that emerged in this period are fraudulent and false. And what he says is that the covenants uh, emphasize the Prophet's pledge to defend and protect Christians as his first priority while making little mention of their financial commitments to the Muslims. Unlike the compacts, that is, these later documents that are found to be forgeries, um, which begin by stipulating the financial obligations that Christians owe the Muslims and which take up the bulk of the documents. The covenants focus instead on the obligations Muslims owe the Christians. So these are profoundly important documents. Why? because they were dictated by the Prophet Muhammad himself. He had his scribes write these documents, and they were agreed to with the Christian and Jewish communities of his time. And they completely undermine uh, various interpretations of the Quran and other ideas that have been propagated, particularly in the modern era, by countries like Saudi Arabia, for example, with their Wahhabist and Salafist uh, interpretations of Islam, that focused distinctly on driving a wedge between Muslims and other community groups, particularly you know, non-Muslim and Christian communities. So what I think we have here is as a starting point for a new understanding of the historic relationship between Muslims and Christians. And we also have uh, important documents that can serve as the basis for a new relationship in the modern era between uh, Muslim and Christian communities today. So I think it's an important starting point for discussion, and I think that um, these documents are are ones that I would like to be read by Muslims and and Christians and Jews, because I think they provide a very important foundation to take forward our interfaith dialogue. Thank Thank you. And now let me welcome Dr. Noura Awad. Thank you, Heather. Can I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners on whose land we gather today and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future? Can I also acknowledge any indigenous um, as well as other cultural leaders within the room? I'd also like to say that I have sort of feel like I've come full circle because my first major, I guess, or formal interfaith engagement started 
at the um, at a uniting church in West End, and I'll tell that story in a second. So it is quite befitting that here we are having a conversation on how to build stronger, um, more resilient, um, you know, communities, uh, especially within civil society. And I wanted to really focus, thank you, Helene, for providing the really uh, big picture of Muslim and Christian understanding in the world. And I want to sort of locate it personally for us here within Australia, within Queensland. And I want to share a story with you. I noticed as I was walking in over the years, I've done quite a lot of work within interfaith, especially with the Uniting Church. I've noticed a few faces. So I know that some of you do know this story already, but for the majority of you, you don't know this story. So I really want to share this to you to really hone in on the practicalities of what it means for you and I and our responsibility and how we can build a more a stronger and, and resilient community. So my story, I should say our story, this is the first time I think Halim and, and I have ever spoken together at an interfaith conference, isn't it? One of the first few, yeah. So thank you, United Church, to unite us together after 22 years of marriage um, on the same panel discussion. But our story begins really uh, in April 2001 when in, in a small suburb of Capalba in the Redlands, sort of southeast of Brisbane. And my husband and I had just um, started building our house. Actually, six months before that, we started the building process of our house. We were living with um, my in-laws' his parents at that time with two small children. We decided that it was actually time for us as a young family to you know, set out on our own to be able to do it on our own. So we bought a block of land and a new housing estate in the Redlands. And we would go and, and you know, like about three, four o'clock in the afternoon every day after work to visit the home site. And during that time, we got to know our neighbors really well who were also building at that same time. And it was quite a, um, a great meeting really of, of, you know, neighbors before even we entered our own homes. We were excited, sharing stories about you know paint colors and and what have you. And towards the end of our build, the topic of fences came up, um, and I remember this. So we had two children at that time: um, a two and a half year old boy and a nine month old girl. And our neighbor on our left hand side had three children, and our neighbor at the back had also three children. Um, and we noticed the children playing together. And while the men went off and did the measurements for retaining walls and fences, Cheryl, my neighbor, said, wouldn't it be great if we didn't actually put any fences up? And so we proposed that. So we moved into our new homes. And this is quite novel in a new estate because everybody wants to put fences up. They want to protect their property. They want to be within their fortress. And Cheryl and, and the women convinced the men that put up the retaining walls, because obviously you need to retain the soil and, and landscape your garden, but let's not put any fences up. And we did exactly that. So we moved into uh, our new house uh, off Nay Road um, in Wallaroo Court in the Redlands in April 2001, and four neighbors didn't put their fences up, including us. And what was great about this was that the kids were able to jump from yard to yard, house to house, 
and play with one another, but still be in the sight of their parents. So there's still obviously uh, uh, that sense of responsibility and parental care. But it gave a chance for the neighbors, the adults, to really socialize with one another. But not just socialize, but intimately know one another so that there's this kindred spirit of responsibility, of care, and of truly loving your neighbor. So that, because I had two young children at that time, if my washing wasn't on the line, and washing happens every single day with young kids, my neighbor Cheryl will yell out, is everything okay? Or will say to my son, you know, is, is everything okay? And I remember later on when I was pregnant with my third child, with our third child, that I couldn't get washing off the line and she'd be able to come and help me. So there was a deep sense. It didn't matter to them that we were devout Muslim or that they were Anglican or Church of England or Catholics at the back or Greek Orthodox. None of that mattered. What mattered was this shared sense of responsibility for one another. Then September 11th happened. My husband and I were getting ready for work, um, and we had turned on the TV news, as we do every morning, to catch the morning news. And we saw the images, the images of the towers burning and then collapsing. I've never forgotten those images, and I know that those who were alive at that time will remember exactly what they were doing at the time when they first heard news of 9-11. Um, I mean, how could we? we the images are seared forever into our memory, and the news and the reels of the images just kept you know, being played over and over. And I remember I turned to my husband that morning and I said to him, honey, the fences are going to go up. And because I felt that there was no way our relationship, as intimate and as strong and caring as it was, of just five months could withstand such horror that was out there. But the fences didn't go up. I thought, okay, give it a few weeks. Um, when everything has sunken in, and when they realize that our two-and-a-half-year-old son has the same name as the most wanted man in history at that time, it would have finally sink in. Our son's name is Osama. But the fences didn't go up, and the other children did not stop playing with our son. And in fact, our neighbors were our greatest supporters and defenders against bigotry and hatred and suspicion and would proclaim to their family, friends, and colleagues that they have no fear from us as Muslims that Muslims should be not, shouldn't be tarred with the same brush, brush as those who committed the horrific crimes against humanity. Did the fences ever go up? Yes, they did, but only after our family left um, to move closer to our children's school. I was so inspired by my experience with my neighbors that I decided to bark, embark on a one-woman campaign to share my faith with anyone and everyone who wanted to know about Islam. After all, if all it took was for people to understand how Islam beautifully informs my life or our lives in the most gracious and compassionate way possible, that people would have no fear. Boy, was I naive. Yeah, there were some gracious moments of understanding, openness, and embrace, but there were some really awful moments um, of narrow-mindedness, ugliness, and othering. And unfortunately, many of those have come from Christians, um, including here at the Budrum, uh, Budrum Anglican Church, not by the Anglicans, but by those who lived within the area. So I 
don't think I have any more time left, but I'm hoping that there will be time for, for question and answer. I wanted to share how meaningful interpersonal relations between people really is. We have to start with ourselves, because as Leo Tolstoy, one of my favorite Russian authors, said, we, you know, we like to think that we can change humanity, but nobody actually thinks to change himself. Um, and obviously he's inspired people like you know, Gandhi, Malala, you know, uh, Martin Luther King's, Rosa Parks, uh, Dorothy Parker, all these great community organizers in the world who have to start looking at ourselves and then going beyond that and going, how do I build relationships now? And Helene mentioned exactly that. What do we have in terms of the basis of building relationships, especially between Muslims and Christians? Because the reality is Muslims and Christians are the two largest religions, um, have the largest amount of adherence in the world and as well as here in Australia. So the first thing in building a community of resilience and stronger community is for actually Christians and Muslims to be able to work constructively together. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nora. And I'll hand over to Reverend Heather Allison. Thank you for those wonderful stories. Um, I was doing some thinking and the opening line to M. Scott Peck's The Road Less Travelled is, life is difficult. And uh, in the area of interfaith relationships, if it was easy, if it was, if it was really easy, we would have done it. But, but we do strike these difficulties that come along, especially at these times, um, maybe around events, maybe around political news that's happening. We have been reminded at this synod by David last night, by Gerda this morning, that we are a listening church. And Gerda gave some actually lovely pointers this morning about how we can be that in this uh, interfaith space. One of the things she said this morning was learn to travel lightly. And I think that is the key to interfaith communication and uh, th this idea of carrying our agenda a bit lightly, having an open hand and not clinging really intensely to something that we claim as our own, but being open. Goethe also said this, this morning about being able to enter into a space of robust conversation. And she also talked about honesty and not whitewashing things. But she also talked about compassion, forgiveness, safety and respect. And those things come up all the time. So how do we make it a safe place to learn and connect? How to go about it? Well, I did a bit of reading around and connecting uh, my thoughts and there's Two powerful books uh, written by the same three men. I don't know whether you've come across it. It sounds like a bad uh, joke that a minister, a rabbi, and an imam walk into a bar, that kind of thing. But it's, the, it's written by these three who got together. I think they're from Seattle, I think. Um, and they just decided, and it was after 9-11, they decided that they would start the process. Three men... 
and they just started connecting. And they've actually put out some pointers, and I think they're not bad. There's, there's sort of five steps. I think we're nowhere near the fifth step, but we'll start with that. So the first one is to move... Their first step is moving beyond separation and suspicion. And that in itself is a big thing. And the first thing to do, I suppose, like those uh, people in Seattle did, was just connect, just to get together and start to tell stories. At this point, just stories about themselves. And in the telling of stories, those people discovered that they were fellow human beings and that the differences that they may have had uh, diminished in the face of many shared experiences. So they discovered that in telling stories, they learnt about others, but they also actually learnt about themselves. They had insight into themselves. And so that first stage of moving beyond separation and suspicion, and what makes people suspicious? Fear. And so moving beyond those things. I want to just tell you a little bit of a story about uh, the Wesley Hospital, where I am a chaplain. Some years ago, there was a program to try and attract some of the women who lived in the local area. Many of them were uh, Saudi women, Saudi Islamic women, who were accompanying their husbands, many of whom were doing PhDs at the University of Queensland. And of course, we're in that general vicinity, so it was thought that maybe we could uh, assist and attract some of these women to come and have their babies uh, at the Wesley Hospital. So we engaged in a process uh, where we needed to find out what their needs were and we were incredibly assisted by the Islamic Women's Association, so delighted to have worked with them. But in that, it, there was a whole lot of concern and all these concerns were raised before actually things were known. There was concerns raised by the hospital management about would this cost a great deal of money because would we need to put in sinks for people to do their ablutions before um, um, prayers? Would, they, would we be requiring prayer mats? Would we be requiring kiblers to point to, to Mecca in rooms? What would it mean? Um, there was concern that there might have been some cultural um, requirements that might uh, put babies at risk. I don't know. There was all this concern. And when we had the conversation, a whole lot of things just got put to rest. So we're asking about, do you need a kiblet pointing to Mecca in every room? They went, oh, no. Everyone said, oh, that's right. They've got an app on their phone. They just whip it out and it's all good. So then I asked about, we would need prayer mats in every room where, where there might be a Muslim family. They just went, oh, this... These floors are cleaned frequently. And, and then I remember a gentleman saying to me, if I ever thought that the floor wasn't clean, I'd remove my own shirt and kneel on that if I needed to. And all the questions and all the concerns just... When we, when we just talked, when we just shared information, it was really important. The next step of those gentlemen is inquire more deeply to move beyond things in a not in a way that we don't have comparison and judgment, but we just learn to discover. And that allows us to open up to the treasures 
and the customs from other traditions. When we are open to, to see that other traditions may have some treasures about the way they focus on God, about the way they um, centre themselves, they may also enrich us. And we need to be in a state where we say, I want to hear. The other steps, I think, will take longer because what we have to get to, the third step of those, those people in Seattle was sharing the easy and difficult parts uh, and that requires a great deal of honest dialogue. So we start with just talking. And when we have established that, we move to a point where we can start to dialogue on some of the, some of the hard bits. Some of the easy bits might be easier and shared. But uh, there's lots of uh, capacity. So thank you. And finally, Reverend Brown Hill. Thank you, Heather, and thank you, everyone, for uh, coming here to join us. Let's get this... Uh, doesn't want to talk to me at the moment. I actually started from a slightly different place. I come to you as someone who's really passionate for community... I believe very much that if we're going to have a strong, resilient um, society, then we need to be working together with different partners. And I believe the church should be at the centre of that. It comes back to some of my theology that I believe we're here on earth for a reason and not just to prepare for what lies beyond. God cares very much about what happens here and now in our society and for us to seek to build a strong, resilient, safe, welcoming society, we need to work with appropriate partners. I spent 15 years in Harvey Bay, actually 11 in Harvey Bay, tr trying to build and grow community. But to do it effectively and to do it sustainably, we need to find partners who share common values. They're the people we need to work with. And I'd like to note at this point that there are many groups within our society that don't want a strong, welcoming community. Our media, our politicians seek power and the way they aim to increase their power is to actually disempower and to break down those other things. So we've actually got to work at it even harder because we have organisations out there that are trying to pull that apart so that they will be stronger. I'm part of the Queensland Community Alliance and that's part of churches, unions, community groups, different ethnic and faith groups seeking to work together by identifying their common values. But to find those common values, we've got to build relationships. I think the core to any of this are the relationships that we build. Like the others up here, I deplore, deplore the acts of terrorism. I'm horrified at the terrorism I used to uh, hear about as a child between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland. 
And I want to remind you that Christians do acts of terrorism. I'm horrified of the acts of terrorism that are the result of Muslim acts around the world which are no better or worse than Christian acts as well. And that fanatics in any faith damage society, damage people and create pain and suffering. And if we allow those images to be the ones that rule us, we will not build a strong society. And the way to break that down, which Nora shared with us so well, is that you build relationships one-on-one. You share food together. You spend time with people. And in any of our faiths, there are a small group of fanatics and a large group of people who seek to do well, who want to follow their God, and in honouring God, honour their society. And as we build relationships with people who share many common values, we get to understand and respect those differences, and those differences actually make a stronger society. That's true within the Uniting Church and the differences we have. It's also true within different faiths and different communities. One of the joys I have in the Community Alliance is there is a group of uh, five of us who get together and have a meal. Two of them are union organisers. Two of us are Christians and someone just sits in the middle somewhere. But we've built a friendship and a relationship that allows us to work together and we trust each other and know that we're all seeking the common good. That, to me, is the real strength of a society where we share different values, share different ideas. We may look different. We may speak differently. But we trust and know each other because we've built a relationship together. Friends, as a church, the way that we can influence our society is declining. Our numbers are declining. We need to seek out common partners, people who share our values that we can work together with so that we can build a common good. That's one of the strengths of the Queensland Community Alliance. It's also the strength of interfaith dialogue and the richness that comes, the blessing that comes because we're willing to respect each other's differences and grow because those differences help us to work together, I think is something that God calls us to. I desire a strong, resilient sustainable society that looks to care for itself and its members. And I know that I can't do it on my own. I know that we as a church can't do it on our own. But that as we seek out the appropriate partners and work together, we can achieve amazing things. The Queensland Community Alliance is one way to do that. Continuing working in interfaith dialogue, in ecumenical dialogue, in working with other civil and social societies is the way that we can achieve so much that we can't do it on our own. 
building relationships and strengthening those are the way that we can be a part of something far bigger than ourselves. So let me encourage you to think about who are the people you work with, you meet with, but even more importantly, you eat with, that you build relationships with, that help strengthen your relationship in your community and as a whole strengthen our community. Thank you. Well, thank you indeed. Now comes, we have 15 minutes where we have an opportunity to ask questions. So if you have a question, would you like to move to one of the um, microphones and uh, we'll take the questions from there. And yes, thank you. And I ask you to make the questions brief so that we've got more time to give the answers. First of all, I would like, I'm Marilyn Swaby from South Morton. I'd like to say what a wonderful gift we've just been given. I just want to share just a tiny little thing. I went to Indonesia, I got so sick, I was so ill, and I was on the floor thinking death looked pretty good. And I said to God, help me, I can't even pray for myself. And there was a, what we call a Muslim maid in the house. And God spoke to my heart and he said, ask Anton to pray for you. He didn't call her a Muslim lady. He called her by name. God calls us by name, not by our religion. And I just think what you've demonstrated is so powerful. We are called by name, not by our differences. Thank you. Hello, Neil Borman, uh, South Morton Presbytery. Uh, it was great to hear from all the speakers, uh, but I, I, I guess I'd like to uh, address my question concerning uh, Wahhabi, uh, Wahhabism. It just seems to me that, that we, uh, we seem to be uh, seeing more and, and much more of an increase in, in our community, uh, it's my experience over the years, what I'd call uh, from what I'd call, in my ignorance, ordinary Muslims, uh, to uh, seeing much more of an appearance of, of, of this Wahhabism. I was just wondering if you had a comment on, on whether that is an increase, whether it's a threat, and uh, how, how, do we, how do we sort of relate to that? It's my favourite topic, actually. <laughs> uh, okay. But thank, thank you so much for asking that question. Uh, essentially, since the 1970s, uh, the Muslim world has been faced with uh, an onslaught of ideology coming out of places primarily like Saudi Arabia, where they have promoted a particular interpretation of Islam that is in some ways drawing on that classical era, uh, but it's drawing on that, those interpretations very selectively to support what I, what I refer to and what other scholars in the field refer to as Islamism, which is essentially a political ideology. Now, unfortunately, when you speak to many Muslims today about their faith, uh, they will talk about concepts like the Sharia, the sh Sharia law, you've, you've heard of that, concepts like the Caliphate and, and, other, and other concepts that have their origins in that particular era. I'm talking about the 8th century through to around the 12th century. Now, there are concepts that 
are similar to these that are found within the Quran, but they're often used very differently in the Quran. And so <clears throat> we have a situation here with what, what is being practiced by Muslims is a political ideology as opposed to the religious faith. And, and countries like Saudi Arabia have been at the forefront of promoting these particular ideologies. To what extent does it, does it pose a threat? It, to some, at some level, it does. If you think about the various terrorist groups that we're familiar with today, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, Jamaa Islamiyah, there's a couple of others probably, what do they all have in common? One might say, well, they're all Muslims, and hence we have this prevailing idea that Islam is a, is a threat. But the, the other, if we look more closely at it, what they really have in common is that they're all Islamist organizations. They're all, they're all part of the Islamist ideology. And if we want to be more precise in addressing the problem that we all face, and that includes Muslim communities and, and wider society, we have to be more focused on this Islamist ideology. Um, now, unfortunately, many of the Muslim organizations, both here and overseas, are influenced or controlled by these Islamist forces. And so this is something that absolutely needs to be addressed. And, it, and uh, you know, the, the, the battle against it is, is, a, is a difficult one. Um, <clears throat> but you're correct in what you're saying. Uh, and I think the government needs to be a lot more aware of this situation and it needs to be a lot more supportive of organisations that are trying to combat these particular ideas and to, to create and, 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 and uh, maintain this distinction between the faith and the political ideology that has stood in as the faith over the last, well, nearly five decades. Thank you. While Bruce is going to the microphone, I might just ask other Bruce. Oh, Bruce is at both microphones. Okay, excellent. Right, thanks, Bruce. Uh, Bruce Johnson from uh, Morton Rivers. I want to address my question to Professor Halim. Um, you, you spoke about the covenants and the later charters, and you said of later charters that they were counterfeit. I was trying to, I was trying to understand. Were these um, a distortion of the covenants or, or were they, in fact, they didn't exist, they were, they were later inventions or something? I wasn't quite sure what you meant by counterfeit. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, thank you for the opportunity to clarify. We're talking about two sets of documents here. Uh, the, the authentic documents I refer to as the covenants and, and are referred to in the, uh, in the scholarship as the covenants. There's another set of documents that are referred to as the compacts. So the covenants are the original documents that the Prophet Muhammad uh, had, uh, I'm, well, you could say signed or had drafted uh, in conjunction with Christian and Jewish communities of his time. Uh, and they had been sort of lost uh, over the course of history. And part of that reason is because they were replaced by documents that were written by Muslim caliphs uh, later on uh, in this same Abbasid era that turn the tables in terms of the relationship between Muslims and Christians. The original documents, the covenants, uh, advocated for a harmonious relationship where no side had an advantage over the other. But when you compare that to the compacts, you see a document where these seem to be drafted by someone who was in a position of political authority, 
that is exercising that level of control or dominance over minority communities. And this is where the whole thing of financial obligations and taxing and all that comes in. So it was discovered uh, in the 1950s by a particular uh, Muslim historian by the name of Muhammad Hamidullah, not to be confused with the Prophet Muhammad, but um, he is the one who uh, determined that the compacts written in the Abbasid era are forgeries. And most Muslim scholars accepted that. They could see that these documents were written at a particular point in time and have no connection back to the Prophet Muhammad and his time. It was only, in, it was only really at the beginning of the 19th century that um, uh, the writings of an Nestorian Christian were discovered. He wrote in Arabic. And uh, this is where we get the Chronicles of Sirat. Um, in those documents, we found the, uh, the covenants, the original covenants, which led to uh, further discoveries of more covenants in different parts of the world. And it was determined on the basis of looking at the texts, looking at the dates, looking at the list of witnesses, and also looking at the, um, um, the, uh, the particular provisions within these documents that were found in different parts of the world, um, uh, retained by communities that historically never had any cooperation or interaction with one another, that these original covenants came to be authenticated. So it's very new historic evidence, uh, and, it, and it really provides a, uh, a new starting point for our understanding of Muslim-Christian relations in the early period of Islam, and it's gelling with a lot of other research that's coming out in terms of, uh, you know, the discovery of, of, of different, uh, different evidence from that very early period, which is completely challenging uh, what we have had to accept uh, from that Abbasid era up until today. Thank you. And I think we'll Thanks need sir. to make this last question. Um, Bruce. Thank, thank you. you. Bruce Cornish from North Queensland. Thank you very much for the presentation. It's wonderful. Appreciate that. I want to share with you briefly about the James Cook University multi faith chaplaincy uh, group there. I've been part of that and chair of it for quite some time. Uh, we have an interfaith project over the last couple of years, and is, at the moment is continuing as, as Let's Talk Lunches, where people gather over food and talk about different. They're different faith perspectives, particularly around issues, okay? The one thing I wanted to talk about, though, is the, the international family group uh, that started to happen. Uh, it's not going right now simply because there's no need. What it started at was there were, there were Muslim, particularly Muslim people who were coming to James Cook University to, uh, to study. The, the men were studying uh, extra um, postgraduate studies, and the women were basically in the community, often couldn't speak English, and, uh, and they were left in the community. And so what the, the multi-faith chaplaincy committee began was to connect with those, the women and the children of the, the people who were actually coming to do the studies. The people who were doing the studies were fine, but um, they were, and so that became a, a surrounding that uh, became a, a dialogue and a, and a support for the, for the Muslim uh, women who were coming um, for 12 months or six months or whatever they were coming for studies. That pattern was, was very, very effective in, in, in integrating and sharing, sharing with people. So I just thought I'd just share that, that insight, and, and I'm sure that can be, that's, there are other university campuses where there may well be people who are coming and the families uh, are not able to be linked in because of various things. So it's not really a question, it's just a, a comment on what's happening in, in Townsville.
Thank you. I think um, somebody wanting to ask David. A, a very, very, very quick one. It's David. David. Hello, I'm David from the South Morton Presbytery. I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East researching Islam. I think I, over a two-year period, probably interviewed about 3,000 people from Yemen, Oman, right up the Gulf to Kuwait and across to Persia or Iran. I've never heard any Islamic person with such a moderate view as you both, and thank you for that. My question is, how are you accepted in the local Muslim community with that viewpoint? Um, we probably have different, I guess, levels of acceptance. Um, and I'm not sure why it is. I'm actually celebrated within the Muslim community for the work that I do. Um, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm given awards um, for, you know, the work that I do. So perhaps is believe it or not, me being, you know, um, female and doing such a necessary part of the building bridges that's so necessary as, I guess, minorities within the space of a multicultural, you know, uh, society. But by and large, um, I'm, yeah, I'm sort of applauded for what I do within the Muslim community. Thank you so much. So I guess the answer is, in part, just get to know you, local Muslim. Um, I must admit, I'll, I'll, I'll throw one comment in now. When 9-11 happened, and we were living just around the corner from the Holland Park Mosque, um, we as a local church wrote to the mosque expressing our, um, our desire to work peacefully um, to, present, to, to counteract some of the hate that was coming, um, coming in at that stage. Um, but following that, I hesitated contacting the leadership of the mosque because I'm female. And as a female, and I'm, I'm, I just wanted to share this with you, particularly for uh, female members that are here. And uh, I was at a multi-faith dinner the other night, a women's dinner, and sitting with uh, one of the other Muslim ladies who works with the Islamic Council of Queensland. And I explained that, and she said, she said don't worry. Contact them anyway. They'll, if, if they feel uncomfortable, one woman, one man, they'll have another person with them. It's okay. Just do it. So, um, so I just want to encourage you to, uh, to reach out and make those con contacts. But um, as we end, I'd like to um, present all our speakers with um, a little uh, token of our appreciation. So these have gifts inside them, if you're wondering why the others, th these people don't get parcels. <laughs>